Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of Locked in Science. My name is Claire and yes, your Lost in Science presenters are still locked in. Being a Melbourne-based program, we are more locked in than um, some of the rest of the country, but we are still here to talk all about science for the next half hour and we are glad you are here with us. This week on the show, Chris and Stu have stories for us. Um, I believe we have one COVID-19 related story and one um, non-COVID-19 related story. Hmm. I wonder who's going to have the COVID-19 related story. Hmm. Chris? Oh, you got me, Claire. I hope it's about some of the drugs we've been hearing about this week. Is it? It is. It is, in fact, yeah. I... You know, I have been kind of avoiding some of the news. So I hadn't heard some of, about this particular drug until someone mentioned it to me. This is the drug ivermectin. I'm familiar with ivermectin, but as my in my um, studies as an animal science student, ivermectin yes. is a, an antiparasitic drug that you'd, you'd give to sheep. Yeah. So it is an antiparasite drug. It's now been touted as a cheap cure for COVID-19. Like I said, I hadn't heard of it and I started looking into it and I've gotten more and more, I don't want to say angry, but <laughs> it's in that, um, that okay. part of the emotional spectrum, let's just okay. say. Okay. Um, this is basically, it's being pushed by various media outlets and um, now politicians, and it threatens to become the Australian version of hydroxychloroquine, oh, which goodness. is still causing trouble across the world. So, yeah, I'm going to have a bit of a look at this uh, this ivermectin, why people are claiming that it is a, a, a cure for COVID-19, not just a treatment, but it's being touted as a cure, and what the evidence actually says. And so, yeah, why you shouldn't necessarily believe what you see in certain media outlets, such as those run by News Corporation, shall we just say. Great. Well, I'm, I'm glad you've um, digged into it a little bit, Chris, and we're going to get a scientific point of view on this. Not just an angry point of view, but a scientific point of view. Yeah. And Stu, what non-COVID story have you brought to us? Well, look at the risk of pigeonholing myself as the one who always brings in a story that sounds like a B-grade movie. <laughs> Um, I'm going to do a story about zombie pigs and it's zombie pigs who had zombie pigs on their calendar for, uh, for mid August. No, it's actually, Actually, you know, considering the way that this year's gone, zombie pigs in August is not such a stretch. Yeah. Well, look, it's actually a story from last year that we, that we slid right past without even saying g'day. Um, but I just, I, without even saying oink. But I just it it came up in my in my sort of reading this week for various reasons we won't go into. But and I just thought, wow, that's a really interesting story. Uh, let's have a look at what on earth these scientists at Yale were doing with a bunch of pigs' heads. I may put a warning on before the actual story itself because it does get a little bit icky. But 
when we get to that, I will I will give you fair warning if you would like to tune out. But uh, we we will talk about what what exactly they found, and it is pretty uh, astounding. My goodness. Well, dear listeners, you may have come for the science um, on COVID nineteen treatments like ivermectin, but you definitely should be staying for the zombie pigs. On with the show. Okay, yes, you are listening to Lost in Science. And once again, I find myself talking about some dubious treatments for COVID-19. I've talked a bit before about, primarily about hydroxychloroquine, which has been boosted by various um, orange-hued presidents. Um, (laughs) But hydroxychloroquine has been a much bigger issue, I guess, in the US than it has been in Australia. I mean, other countries as well, but particularly... Uh, in the US, it has become really a partisan political thing. And it's not going away, despite there being a number of clinical trials showing that it's ineffective against COVID-19. The recent kind of resurgence of it was around a website called hcqtrial.com, which was touted as proof that it works. But despite the name, the domain name for that website, it is not a real trial. It's just an anonymous website with cherry-picked data from selected countries uh, and is not at all a substitute for the real randomised controlled trials, which again have been showing that hydroxychloroquine is ineffective. That's what I'm going to say about that, I guess. But ivermectin is what I'm going to talk about instead. Now, ivermectin is something a bit different because it is currently being pushed uh, in Australia by various news corp outlets, including The Australian, uh, The Daily Telegraph and Sky News, as also some stories on various radio stations around the country. And as a result, some politicians have picked it up as an issue, um, most notably the Nationals MP, David Gillespie. Now, this sounds like it risks becoming the Australian version of hydroxychloroquine. So I thought it was due for a bit of a fact check. But, you know, I don't have to explain everything to you guys because, Claire, you have said you already know about ivermectin. Yeah, I am familiar with ivermectin uh, on my time as an animal science student at university, um, learning about ivermectin as a way or a treatment for um, for sheep. Um, when you do sheep dipping, you're treating them with ivermectin and it is a way to rid them of all their parasites. Yes, hence uh, one of the, uh, the headlines I saw, I think it was on Farmer's Daily or Farm Daily website saying sheep dip cures coronavirus um, <laughs> well, cut to the chase yeah but um yeah no it is used on animals. also used on humans um it is known on humans for things like mostly parasite things like head lice and scabies um either as a topical cream or tablets that you can take so it works from the inside out i guess but under prescription as far as i can figure out it's only taken under prescription you can't buy it across over the counter but it has been in use since the 1980s and it is believed to be generally safe and effective when used for the recommended condition at the recommended dose. Early this year, though, there was some research done in the laboratory at Monash University that found that it could be potentially effective against uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus. The coronavirus causes COVID-19. They did some experiments on a cell culture in the laboratory and found that it stopped the SARS-CoV-2 virus growing within 24 to 48 hours. Mm. So it showed it has some potential. But again, this okay. was just addition in the lab yeah. Not in humans. This isn't this isn't on a person. This no. is just 
some cells. Also notably, so, not actually human cells. This is okay. a, a cell strain called Vero cells, which were extracted from a green monkey in 1962 and have okay. been mutated. That is important. Yeah. So, Chris, in the Petri dish, in the in vitro testing, did it kill the virus and the cells or did it just kill the virus? As far as I know, it just stopped the virus from replicating, yeah. Okay, right. Yeah. That's important. Yeah. But still, it doesn't show that it's going to necessarily work no. as a treatment for humans. But enter one Professor Thomas Barodi. Now, Thomas Barodi, he was very influential in the 1980s and particularly got, he um, got well known for establishing a triple therapy for ulcers. The ulcers that are caused by the bacteria Helicobacter pylori. Um, so he developed this triple therapy. Other people have you know, put different twists on that and has been quite successful as, um, yeah, for curing or treating digestive problems. On the 4th of August this year, though, he put out a, uh, a press release about ivermectin, um, quoting the Monash research, but also an earlier systematic review. Uh, again, only doing people doing research on in, in vitro in laboratory, claiming that ivermectin would be effective against SARS-CoV-2. But not only that, he has come up with a triple therapy for COVID-19 that he claims will be or is effective. Yeah, so he's basically trying, saying, I've done the triple therapy before to cure ulcers, stomach ulcers. Now here is my triple therapy for to cure COVID-19. Just isn't there isn't there already an effective uh, treatment for stomach ulcers, which is antibiotics? Well, this is a triple therapy for ulcers. Did involve antibiotics, but also involved. I think the one he had had bismuth as well, and a couple of different kinds of antibiotics. I think it was. Right. Um, yeah. So it was just basically you had to use a, a few different things because to, to actually kill the the bacteria effectively. Otherwise, it'd be resistant to say to one antibiotic on its own. Oh, okay. Yeah. But again, like this is that's his experience. He's a gastroenterologist. He has no published research in COVID nineteen. Just let me just remind you of that. So um, why why did he think his you know triple barreled approach would would work in this situation? Or has he has he done any lab trials? Or what's what's the go not, there? Yeah, it's not clear um, why he he came up with this. He I've listened to a couple of interviews with him where he claims that he has a hundred percent cure rate but not actually showing any data. He mentioned a... a 100% in, cure rate of people who have SARS-CoV-2, yes. COVID-19 disease. Yeah. yeah. And he claimed he's got a trial running in Bangladesh, but I don't know that anyone's actually seen um, a published version of that that trial. But he doesn't stop him as touting it in radio interviews as a proven COVID prevention and cure he says it's a very easy virus to cure, and he suggests that it's being suppressed because there's no profit for pharmaceutical companies. And as a result, of course, people who he's telling this to are getting very angry, saying that the government should be approving this. They should be treating everyone in Victoria with this now because we've got an urgent situation. Now, it's making me angry, but perhaps for different reasons. Naturally. Yes. I mean, because the first question, and not an unreasonable one, is where is the evidence? As you said, Claire, where is the evidence that this actually works? Um, I have looked for it. There is nothing in the peer-reviewed literature that you can search on the PubMed website, which is a website run by the US National Institute of Health that has medical research from around the world. There's also the preprint server MedArchive, 
that show that is basically research that hasn't been published yet in the peer-reviewed literature. I searched that. I found two small trials. One was a, a retrospective study from Florida. The other was a small pilot trial that gave ivermectin alongside um, hydroxychloroquine. They all claim success for ivermectin, but they're not... Look, I had, didn't have a lot of time to dig really into and pull apart the quality of these. They didn't seem that impressive to me. But I think it's important to note they're not actually the sort of randomized controlled trials that you need to test whether a therapy really works. And none of these um, ones that I've been able to find any data on published or non-published is of Barodi's um, triple therapy. But this doesn't bother Barodi. He actually said in one of the interviews, you don't need to do trials on approved drugs. I don't know about you, but I don't think that's how science works. No, it's really not. Hang on a sec. He said you don't need to do trials on approved drugs, but what if those drugs haven't been approved for new treatments? Well, there is a, I mean, there is a thing called off-label treatment where there is a drug that is on the market, then you can give it to people off-label, so to speak. But as that's kind of a... It's still not an approved usage of it. Generally, these things still need to be approved for a particular purpose. Um, and you know, this is a big this is a big illness that's affecting a lot of people. Surely, if you're going to start rolling it out, you want to know whether the treatment works before you start giving it to people en masse. And then there's also the safety aspect as well. Um, as I said, ivermectin does seem to be safe, say as a head lice treatment, but some of the laboratory tests, the early laboratory tests, have indicated that you would need a higher dose to kill the coronavirus. This, of course, hasn't stopped people using it. I did, speaking of the Bangladesh study, I found that Bangladesh has approved it now as a treatment uh, in that country. Um, and there was a report in The Guardian saying that in uh, Latin American countries, people are being encouraged to inject veterinary doses of ivermectin. So, yeah, it's having real effect on real people in the world. Now, when I first heard the name ivermectin, I thought it sounded familiar um, because it came up in a previous story that I'd done on hydroxychloroquine where there was a questionable company called Surgisphere that had been claiming to analyse patient data. So they had a preprint claiming that ivermectin was effective, which then led to it being taken up in Latin America where it was commonly used for various parasites. But, of course, that study, I can't find that anywhere anymore. It's been thrown into doubt now that Surgisphere's methods have been basically being questioned. And so this is the problem that with these, all these COVID-19 treatments, that you have substandard science that is being pushed out there to, to um, force an agenda and play on people's emotions and ideologies. Like we saw it with hydroxychloroquine, and we're seeing it again also now with the, um, the claims from Russia that they've developed a vaccine. We're at the start of the vaccine problem, so I'm going to make a prediction that we're going to, there's going to be a lot of ugliness about various claims for various effectiveness of vaccines. And yeah, it's just going to be the next wave of these, of these treatments coming through. But look, COVID-19, it is very serious, but finding treatments for any disease is difficult. It's not straightforward. We need good science. Now is not the time to be abandoning science to follow claims, no matter even if it's a respected authority like um, Thomas Barodi seems to be um, respected in his field. But again, his field is gastric diseases, not virology, not um, COVID-19. Just on a note, I said um, before that a one, there was an Australian politician who was pushing it. That's um, David Gillespie. He's a Nationals MP. He is actually, his previous life, as before becoming a politician, he was a gastroenterologist himself. So there's also a little bit of people kind of following their own crowd and beliefs. 
If you want to get you know, like your eminent groups, the Royal Australian College of GPs has put out a news report on their own website saying that there is insufficient evidence for ivermectin and that randomised controlled trials are needed, as we just said. Um, the Guardian's report that I mentioned, that quotes um, Alan Cheng, who you may know as the Deputy Chief Health Officer from Victoria. And he, has, he says, again, that ivermectin has not been established as a treatment, which, as he points out, doesn't mean that it won't work. His feelings are probably isn't going to work, but it, you know you need the trials again to establish whether it does or not. So, yeah, look, I mean, science does seem often to be moving too slow for some people's tastes. Um, I think this year we've seen science moving a lot faster than it normally does. You know, there is such a race of to get the research done, to get treatments and vaccines out there. It's moving much faster than it normally does. I don't think we should push it even further so that it goes off the rails. I think you know we need to keep those standards of science up and not just latch on to something that someone claims without evidence is going to work. We do often mention on the show that there is too much science generated all over the world for our little half hour a week to cover Um, But we do cover a lot of ground, even when we're locked in, as we still are. But one story that came to my attention this week, uh, on the socials, actually, someone was spreading this news story, and it quite escaped me. From well over a year ago, back in April 2019, um, I don't know if either of you recall this story, and if if you are squeamish and you don't really want to hear about, you know, brain death and and animals being experimented upon possibly tune out now because this story does go into some detail about what was going on but scientists at Yale University published last year that they brought back to life 32 pigs hours after they had died I totally missed that story Stu and possibly more gruesomely the story was that they were experimenting on just pig heads and brought the pig heads back to life but This is only part of the story. So what really happened? All right. Now, the concept of brain death is the idea that when blood flow is stopped to the brain, it can't absorb enough oxygen to keep functioning. And brains use a lot of energy and they need a lot of oxygen to enable them to do that. So when the brain is deprived of oxygen for too long, it stops functioning and an organism is considered dead. Yeah. Um, you know, other organs, we can restart hearts, we can repair various parts of, of, of organs and other things. There's not really been any way to restart a brain after this has happened. That's pretty much it. We've accepted that for, you know, since, since medicine was a thing. Take that, Dr. Frankenstein. Yeah. Well, <laughs> strangely enough, Um, But no, because the brain controls lots of functions of the body and the body doesn't work either. If the brain stops working, they can can, like hook people up to machines and and keep them breathing and all sorts of things. But the brain normally controls that. So you can't sort of keep controlling that without the brain there, except in zombie movies, which have some sort of magic biology that only works in zombie movies uh, and they can walk around for I don't know how long never has been made clear in any zombie movies I've ever seen. But um, 
Scientists have been able for a long time to collect cells from an organism and keep them alive in vitro, which is in a petri dish or some sort of container in a laboratory with the right nutrient solutions. And they can do this or could do this with brain tissue. The thing about growing cell cultures like that in a type of solution is when the cells use up all the nutrients in it or they produce too much waste, you just take the cells out and put them in fresh solution. And so it's actually easy to culture cells in that way. But they're not functional cells. They're not the organ itself. They're just cells from that organ. And we can keep them alive for various amounts of time. And there are cell lines that have been around for decades. Like the ones we mentioned in my story, the, the Vero cells that were cultured in 1962. Yeah, yeah. 1962. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and yeah, so that, there are cell lines like that all around the world being used in medical experiments and other experimentation. So in a living organ, the bloodstream does that job. It supplies nutrients, it removes excess waste while the cells stay where they are, and the blood also supplies oxygen. So the Yale scientists believed, much like Herbert West in the story of Reanimator, that they could restore this flow to a brain even after it was removed from the rest of the body. So what they did was they went to an abattoir, they took 32 pigs' heads and removed the brains from the pigs' heads and hooked them up to a machine they called the Brainex. Oh, wow. Okay. And the Brainex delivered a synthetic nutrient solution through the vascular system of the brain as a blood substitute. So they sort of got all of the different vessels coming out of the brain and hooked them into their nutrient solution. Yeah, as far as it goes, there's only a couple of major... Uh, there's, a, there's a major vein and a major artery yeah. going in and out of the brain, so it's not difficult to to find them and hook them up to something like this. So you've got an in-pipe and an out-pipe, basically. Mm. And then they pretty much... So they pumped this artificial blood substitute for six hours through the brains of these disembodied brains of pigs and they measured all of the activity in the brain and after a couple of hours the cells started to fire up again oh so there was cellular activity in the brain and some cellular functions were restored in the brains of the 32 or in the 32 pig brains that they were testing on now what they didn't find was any organized electrical activity as you would see in a functioning brain what they saw was just cells starting to reanimate literally um so there's no indication according to the researchers of any consciousness in the brains they they couldn't see any way there would be any perception in the brains because that electrical activity which shows brain activity actual you know functioning brain was not present but they did report shows many cellular functions and other brain activities that were thought to stop irreversibly soon after brain death were able to be restarted hours after the brain had stopped working they basically did this because they're looking into research for brain injuries so it was funded by uh, an institute for neuro research in the states, and what they're looking for is ways that they can possibly apply this knowledge 
to treatments for brain injuries, especially those associated with oxygen supply, like some forms of stroke and other, you know, brain injuries like that. So that that was their intent, but it also obviously raises ethical questions for medical research and treatment, especially where the status of patients might be in question for longer than previously considered. And this could be, you know, one of the big worries is it's going to be especially controversial in the area of organ transplants because organs, uh, donor organs, have to be removed very quickly to preserve them and or in order to make them still viable for the for the transplant recipient. So if there's any kind of delay in getting them from the donor into the recipient, that could be a problem. And the worry is that people will say, well, isn't there something else you can do? And, and that's if these sort of tr- treatments are developed, that may actually become an ethical question that doctors will have to answer. Um, What's that? What do you mean that... Where, that- is a question that they will have to decide whether they can do this to keep the organ going or... or... Or whether they would be able to somehow restart the brain and therefore you oh, okay. don't get to take the organ and, and donate it. I see what you it's, mean, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a toss-up because do we save this patient or do we save that patient? I guess that's always been there with yeah. organ donation, but th- this sort of adds another layer of complexity to it potentially. I was just um, thinking that if you can... If they can, like get restart a brain essentially by giving it some nutrients like that then can you do that to other organs as well i mean we know we always said the brain is kind of the most fragile but so if you can restart a brain by doing this can you keep other organs going with a similar kind of nutrient solution well i guess it does raise those sorts of research questions as well is that you know if 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 organ tissue is damaged to the point where it's no longer functioning is that irreversible or is it something that we can figure out ways of allowing the organ to keep functioning for long enough to repair itself and then we can continue to use Mm. that organ and we might we might be able to move away from organ transplants as well um but yeah it's a complicated you know ethical question i think the story itself is pretty amazing and i can't believe it slipped past last year it was in a number of uh media outlets when i went looking for more details um and it was published in uh, Nature on April seventeenth, twenty nineteen. I'm not exactly sure what overshadowed such a sort of massive tri- uh, medical story um, in twenty nineteen. But um, and it's obviously groundbreaking research. But it's you know it's one of my favourite things. I guess is when the science fiction and the science sort of get a bit murky about what's real and what's fiction. Well, we, we get closer to the science fiction every year. I think. have time for on another episode of Locked in Science. Locked in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation uh, and normally recorded in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne, but at this time is recorded in the home studios of Claire, Chris and Stu. Locked in Science is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. 
please get in touch with us. You can email us. We are lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter. We are there. We are Lost in Science one Or you can find us on uh, the Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or just tune in again next week, wherever you find us, when Stu, Claire and Chris get locked in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.